concepts like development and cooperation mean anything to you, you know those big words a little cloudy that hover somewhere between politics and humanitarianism. Well, at Supernova, we are an NGO, and development is the core of our work, it's our passion. So we'd love to take you on board and offer you an original approach that's true to who we are by inviting to our mic the privileged players and witnesses of a dynamic, ambitious and accessible world of development. Welcome to Voices of Development, a podcast created and produced by Supernova. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us today to welcome our guest, Martin Benedek, Head of Cooperation at the Delegation of the European Union to Libya. My name is Salome Ponsin, and I will be your host for this episode. Dear Martin, thank you for joining us to Voices of Development. It is an honor and a pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Before we move on with our conversation, could you please briefly introduce yourself? Who are you and where do you come from? Yes, uh, dear Salome, many thanks for the invitation. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to be here. So my name is Martin Benedek. I am the head of cooperation at the EU delegation to Libya. And I started here about, say, five months ago. So I'm reasonably new in Libya, but now I have a fairly uh, good understanding of what this job entails. And it's my first delegation, so it's, a, it's quite a new experience after, as you reminded me, 20 years in Brussels. <laughs> So it's my first uh, sort of real delegation experience on the ground. Great. Actually, what brought you to diplomacy in the EU? Yes, uh, good question. I mean, I think uh, it's interesting because the External Action Service is uh, currently set, setting up a diplomatic academy for European diplomats, but um, that would be for the future, future generations of diplomats. I guess my generation, people sort of just drifted into diplomacy, or I would call it EU diplomacy. And I think it's a, it's a very particular field in the sense that people tend to have some sort of expertise in one or in certain policy areas, but they, they don't have a sort of classical diplomatic training uh, as such. So, I mean, I would say that my background is not sort of a classical diplomatic training. It's more academic. Uh, but, uh, of course, I've always had a great deal of interest in, in, in diplomacy and external relations. And I guess that's how I ended up working in Libya. So what are the major milestones that uh, mark your career up until today? For me, it's, it's, it has been a pretty gradual uh, process. So most people start as a trainee in their early to mid-20s, usually once they've uh, finished their university studies or done their first master's. And then, to give it a shot, they apply to the European Commission, or these days they can also apply to the European Parliament, the, the External Action Service, and even EU agencies. And that's a sort of very intense five-month period. And then you can figure out if you like it, and then um, you can, you know, you can stay on. So you spent almost like 20 years in Brussels uh, with European institutions, and then came here to, to Libya. When you first set foot in Libya, in your new position, what were your first impressions? Really happy to get this job. Uh, I really wanted this job uh, for different professional reasons. I mean, it's an interesting sector. The cooperation section basically deals with the bilateral cooperation and soon with the migration-related cooperation with, uh, with Libya, which means that we have real leverage, a real impact on what happens on the ground. And that was primarily what attracted me to this job. So, and again, this is no, by, by no means uh, a major source of criticism of working in headquarters, but you have a different level of impact on developments on the ground. 
You can write all the policy briefings and speeches that you like, but that appears to have less of an impact on the ground. Uh, and after a while, if you do this, these sorts of jobs, it's nice to see actual results sort of flowing from your work. So, I mean, for me, that was the main um, attraction of this job. Where we're sitting right now, it's called Palm City. Um, visually, it's a very um, pleasant environment to be in. But of course, that's, that's only half the story. The rest of it is the, the actual security conditions. Um, and, you know, sometimes the job is quite difficult. But of course, people who want to come here, uh, that's my experience. Because um, recently I've recruited new colleagues. People either really don't want to come to Libya just because they read about it in the news or they really want to come to Libya. And I guess I probably fell in the second category of, of people. I've, I'd been dealing with Libya from a policy perspective before. But, uh, you know, once you get plugged into something that's very complex and very interesting, you really want to go and, and, and sort of try and have an impact on the ground. And so I think most colleagues that I work with here are extremely committed to trying to make a difference. I think it's a particular track within diplomacy. Well, people who find these sorts of challenges interesting, they really do want to come to places like Libya, partly because it poses a real um, professional challenge where they think they can make a difference. Yeah, but still, like the, the security context like requires particular lifestyles and and work styles. Like living in a secure neighborhood, like like here in, in Palm City, or working remotely from Tunis, is is not the same than strolling uh, on the Grand Place in Brussels um, or being able to work directly with your colleagues and partners. Like, how do you adapt to this new life? Yes, I mean it is it is different. I mean, what's difficult is if you have families, which I do. That's particularly difficult. So that sort of transition. Because Libya is a non-family post, that means that um, I work a lot with UN colleagues. So for me, it's always really interesting to talk to them about their family situations because that's the real downside to these jobs, that it really disrupts your family life. You know, that poses certain challenges to people doing these types of jobs. So I think lots, there are lots of upsides. I think professionally, it's really interesting. Uh, I think the security conditions, our employers do their best It's called the duty of care. The difficulty is the sort of personal mm. side of it all. And given that it's my first delegation, we didn't have anything to compare it to. So, um, and of course, my wife was very encouraging, so we didn't, I can't just make that decision on my own. Uh, so she really encouraged me to take this job, but we sort of did this without really knowing the implications it would have um, for the whole family. So, I mean, that was, we kind of leapt into uh, the dark, if you will. Mm -hmm. And of course, now those implications are becoming a little bit clearer. Uh, but it's a, you know, it's a constant learning experience mm -hmm. and adaptation to, uh, to the consequences of, uh, of such a job. But again, I, I'm not alone. I mean, I, I think the, one of the good aspects is that there's a really vibrant social life in, in a place like uh, Palm City. Um, so the, the context in Libya is, is particularly complex. There are high stakes, both internally, uh, also for the region and for Europe. Uh, but the country seems mired in political and security intrigues that prevent it from moving towards stability. How do you how do you approach this environment? I mean, I imagine that upon checking the office, skepticism is not appropriate, but still, like few envision a near resolution of the crisis. Sure, I mean, I think everyone comes with a great deal of optimism, and so did I. And I say that after having worked on Libyan issues for three years, so I wasn't an, an you know, entirely new to the whole environment, at least politically. I think, and now having, having met some of, most of the players working on this, um, either in Tripoli or Tunis, 
I think it's become even more apparent uh, that it's very difficult to get to the sort of uh, political endpoint that we would like to see, which is basically democratic elections that everyone accepts to have a unity government that has the democratic legitimacy to work across the whole of Libya. I think we all, all of us in the international community would like to get there. The question is how, and various people, mainly in uh, the special envoys appointed by the United Nations Secretary General, have tried. But I think one of the constraints I have witnessed, whether in financial programming or even politically, is that you really need to have the buy-in of all the Libyan stakeholders to make that a success. And of course, there are different interests at play. There's only so much the international com uh, community can do, either through funding or political persuasion. At the end of the day, it's really up to Libyan actors to, um, to come to the negotiating table and agree some sort of a compromise deal that I think would be acceptable to everyone. You know, there are different ways of doing it. I mean, the whole beauty of democratic elections is that if everyone accepts the rule of, rules of the game, then whoever is elected has the democratic mandates to govern. But it's not, you know, we kind of take it for given, or take it as a given um, in Europe. This is the way we should proceed about our common affairs. It's not a given. Democracy needs to be nurtured and developed. I think this is the real challenge of this job here, to put the underpinnings of democracy in place and the rule of law. It takes time. How do you do so? First of all, I don't think it's our job. And I think the current uh, special representative, special envoy of the UN SecGen believes that this should be a Libyan-developed, a Libyan-owned process. Fundamentally, I think there's a, there's a real desire uh, in Libyan society uh, for stability, but also, you know, for some sort of a political resolution to a crisis that has been, I mean, you can count it differently, but it has been going on at least since 2014 with ebbs and flows. But I mean, it has... It's had its ups and downs, but uh, and the situation is certainly more stable than it was before. But I don't think that a political resolution uh, is in sight. In the meantime, what can we do? I think um, we have made it clear from the EU perspective that we would like to work with Libya. We have funding, which of course is very limited to the resources that Libya has at its disposal uh, because it's a wealthy country. I mean, the hydrocarbon resources, oil basically, could pay for a lot of these um, projects that we cannot finance from European taxpayers' money. So what we can do is we choose certain niche policy areas and we work very closely with our uh, Libyan counterparts to see if they're interested in a particular policy area. And then we devote appropriate European funding to those objectives and try and bring additional European expertise essentially to help reform certain parts of the Libyan economy or Libyan society even uh, that would really help uh, move the country forward in a direction that, that, that Libyans would like to see. So I think our impact is, I think it's reasonably substantial. The whole point of it all is that you know, you work in certain areas to trigger the sorts of changes that the ultimate beneficiaries, the Libyan population, can take yeah. forward. So at Supernova, we are quite uh, familiar with the Libyan terrain, as it was uh, in Libya that we deployed our first interventions. Today, we have uh, the support of the European Union to promote the reintegration of former combatants and the economic integration of migrants, all of while contributing to uh, the revitalization of the private sector and uh, the emergence of a favorable environment for job creation. Um, so stabilization, economy, jobs, uh, but also perhaps environments. What are the priority development issues that you perceive and what trends should be relied on, in I your guess, opinion? I guess it comes at a good point because we have just designed the main priorities of our 
our bilateral support for 2024. We have two big sources of funding. One, the sort of bilateral type of support, and then the other one is sort of related to migration, which is handled slightly different. But on the bilateral front, we try to cover the whole range of main policy sectors in Libyan society. So we have one that seeks to um, target water resource management and wastewater management. You know, it might look like a minuscule issue, but here it's a really big issue because wastewater management is not has not been addressed in the past. The second big policy area is what we call governance and decentralization, which is everything from deepening the rule of law. Decentralization essentially implies empowering municipalities to deliver core services to citizens. It has a very important component on cultural heritage protection. If you look across Libya, I mean, it has an amazing history with Roman ruins going back 2,000 years. Civil society needs, uh, I think, needs a lot of support. And of course, an important part of it is partly related to, re to the reunification of the country, is there's a reconstruction fund for Benghazi and Derna in the east of the country to help reconstruct Benghazi that had been heavily affected in the uh, conflict. And the third one is what we call our skills program, which I think is where Supernova has some, uh, some experience. And the idea is that we would really try and develop or help Libyan youth, but entrepreneurs develop their skills as entrepreneurs, but also we're trying to help the financial sector, private sector development in general, but also the green and blue transformation of the Libyan economy, whether it's maritime resources, tourism. I mean, the untapped potential of this country is amazing. If you look around, you'll see that um, now people tend to go elsewhere in North Africa Africa, but imagine if they came to Libya, I think this is a major potential for the country. And that's the sort of thing that we try and um, address with our, our government counterparts. How do you identify the priorities? How do you, do you define them? We all have collective experience in having worked in the country. Over the years, we have sort of identified the main issues that need to be, that we think might need uh, additional attention. But at the end of the day, we talk to our government counterparts. So it's not something that's imposed on a third country like Libya, but we come up with an idea. We pitch it to the government or our government counterparts, and we ask them what they think. And they tell us if we're on the right track. Uh, then we turn that into some sort of a policy paper, which of course takes on board all the previous work that had been done. Because don't forget, it's not just the European Union, but a number of development agencies that work in Libya. The United Nations has a massive presence. We have implementing partners such as yourself, but others who also have experience. So if you put all that collective experience together, you can usually come up with a good strategy. And then, of course, we need to get our member states to approve it all on behalf, at the end of the day, of European taxpayers. explain what like what your job entails like what is a typical day for you um concretely you know for our listeners to, to understand a bit more um yeah your, your job so it's it's a bit different from what you would normally do nine to five monday to friday in in europe i think the big shift uh was i think in 2021 when the eu delegation relocated from tunis to tripoli so first we have a local presence which i think is really important in terms of being able to implement these policies on the ground second that also meant transferring many of our staff from tunis to tripoli so now practically everyone's here so whenever you're in tripoli i mean we're talking about a few weeks and then people go on rest leave you know you're here for a few 
weeks, then you try and schedule all the meetings. And by that, I mean our Libyan counterparts as well, because we need to adapt to the, you know, Ramadan, for example, bring government business to, you know, to, a, to a halt for, for a few weeks. So that, I mean, we obviously work in third countries like Libya. So we need to obviously adapt our whole working schedule. But I mean, in, in a in sort of normal period, you would tend to work from Monday to Thursday, take Friday and Saturday off, which of course in Libya would be a weekend. And on Sunday we work because um, it's, a, it's a work day in Libya. And also we tend to work pretty late just because there's nothing else to do in, uh, in places like Palm City. It's not that there's nothing else to do, but there's a, there's a lot of work to be done and yeah. you know our resources are quite limited. So you tend to work really hard while you're here. And then um, after a few weeks, I think it's really necessary to get away and sort of recharge your batteries. Do you personally meet with beneficiaries and partners? Yes. I mean, partners for sure. I mean, implementing partners on a daily basis. Beneficiaries, it's a good question. I mean, when it comes to migration, for sure. And the ultimate beneficiaries here are essentially migrants and persons of concern. And those are very difficult meetings because, I mean, when you see the reality of migration, um, and we're talking about really difficult stories. But, of course, the ultimate beneficiaries are the ones who benefit from you know, the services of UNHCR and IOM. And yeah, obviously as a person with a family, I mean, when you see kids the same age as your own kids in a very difficult situation, I mean, that's when you realize how important it is to put funding so people can benefit from the sorts of services uh, that are really life-saving. So these, these are the people who are the ultimate beneficiaries, for example, of our migration funding. We're already coming to the end of this episode. Uh, I just had three brief questions left. Looking back, what would you say to the young professional you were in the EU? Well, I mean, I, everyone should follow their dreams. And if they really want to do this uh, sort of work, I think it's super exciting professionally. It has its challenges, so, uh, but particularly on the personal side. But I think it's, it's, it's really wonderful to, um, to live in a new country and, and to see a different way of, way of life. So by all means, if this is something that uh, someone is, is attracted to, as I was or presumably as you were, then uh, by all means, they should really, uh, really follow their dreams and uh, do what is necessary to do this type of work, which is not only the academic training, but the professional experience. So yeah, traineeship here, traineeship there, or even work working for, for an NGO to get the sort of experience to see whether this is what you really want to do. Because I mean, there are, as I try to highlight, I mean, there are downsides to it as, uh, to it as well. Personally, I find it, a, you, know, you know, very exciting. And professionally, it's a really enriching experience to do these, these sorts of jobs. But I think you really need to test it. You need to mm -hmm. test yourself in an environment like Libya to see whether this is really what you want to do for the rest of your life. And also, I mean, this is, these are not sort of final decisions. So people tend to do these non-family posts for a little bit of time, and then they feel like they really need to move on or do something uh, which perhaps is a bit less challenging from a, from a personal perspective. How do you continue to learn and be amazed? Like, for example, which authors or artists makes you vibrate? Artists? Uh-huh. Hmm, good question. Well, I mean, I, I think here personally, I mean, it's, um, I don't know, I mean, this is just a personal experience, but I listen to a lot more music um, than before. So I think there's more time as well uh, for sort of personal development. So, I mean, I've tried to learn Arabic, but the sorts of things that I really enjoyed before, like, like going to a concert or like a classical concert. I mean, these things you can't really do here. So you need to be more, a little bit more disciplined about doing these things, finding time for these sorts of things. But a cultural experience, um, uh, hmm. It's a good question. You got me there now. <laughs> Because I haven't even, <laughs> I haven't really thought about any of that. I sort of associate that with my life, um, you know, back in Brussels. So, um, you know, sorts of things, finding time for um, concerts, you know, mm -hmm. or going to the theater. I mean, that I haven't done in ages. 
yeah, reading is basically the one thing, and it's it's also true. But I mean, maybe it's just my personal experience. I tend to read books that are sort of uh, I'm interested in history and politics. Yeah, I've recently read books that uh, try to explain you know the current reality in North Africa and also about political histories. I mean, for example, Avi Schleim's uh, Iron War, mm-hmm. just because he was a professor at, uh, at Oxford when I was there. And I think that's a, a sort of seminal work, sort of politics of the Middle East, so that I, I particularly enjoyed. I think another good book that I really like, but I mean, it's not related to it, is I think it's called Genesis. Uh-huh. Because it's, it explains from a layman's you know, perspective how the universe kind of came, came into being. And, uh, you know, I'm not a physicist by any means, but it sort of explains the big, the various points in which our kind of universe came into being. And it was pretty interesting because I I don't specialize in any of this stuff, but it's explained in a way that, uh, you know, even the layman can understand. Thank you for sharing this. Um, Finally, what can we wish you? Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't think we, we need good luck here because I think we're pretty well served. I think the good wishes are not just for us, but really for Libya to be able to move forward Mm -hmm. to a sort of uh, future that everyone accepts and everyone's happy about. And I think, uh, as we kind of discussed earlier, there are a few missing elements there. But ultimately, I think everyone comes to to a place like Libya with that dream of being being able to contribute to a sort of democratic, prosperous future. And of course, the reality doesn't always measure up to your expectations. But I mean, ultimately, we come to a place like Libya to... uh, to make a real contribution to a country's future. And of course, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing all of this. Thank you very much.